out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes. As you know, we love to play the finest in indie pop. But we also love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the photos because I spoke to one-time member Steve Eagles to find out more about life in a band, beginning with those very early years back in 1977 when he was, um, yes, forming very early punk bands. And um, after a few minutes of casual chat, we got down to those very interesting and excitable days in '77. Steve, tell us all about Satan's Rats. Well, I formed a band in Evesham in 76 called Satan's Rats. Um, why, did, why did I choose that name? Well, because it looked good on a black leather jacket. Yes. The back of the jacket, <laughs> I always thought. <laughs> yes. And that was, it took me about two seconds to think of it and we <clears throat> we just stuck with it yeah and did you because at that stage because because i was born in the um yeah the mid 60s so i'm in my mid 50s now and um so i was kind of a bit too young for punk to be honest i was i was yeah, still yeah. sort of faffing about sort of listening to the charts even though at that stage i'd started to get into things like david bowie because Thankfully, my first single had been The Space Oddity, which is good, because before that, I'd, I'd obviously enjoyed the Top of the Pops period of the early 70s with, I mean, I, there was Al Q, Alice Cooper, who was brilliant, but there was also, you know, Gary Glitter and The Sweet and and Susie Quattro. So you must have been just a bit older than that and had sort of... Um, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm from 58, so I'm 60, coming up to 62 now. Yes. So at the time of punk, I was a you know teenager, late teens, and uh, just a, just the right age really. And I was, I played guitar. I'd been in a couple of you know youth club bands, and I could play all right. So um, <clears throat> it was it was kind of easy just to get get a singer together. Yes. Uh, a lad who was at college with me. Uh, found a drummer, the bass player, and off we went. Which was quite, yes, and half of the band. Yeah, sorry, go on. And I was going to say half the band formed the nucleus of the, the next musical combo, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, yeah. So we morphed into the photos. Yes. And were you, I mean, at the time, because obviously you were there in the slightly glorious period of punk rather than the slightly sort of sad part of punk. Did you did you sort of feel quite sort of, you know, like at the time, you know, you were, I mean, those early bands were really something, you know, in the sense of, yes, it hadn't become a bit of a cliche and a bit embarrassing. Well, at the outset of punk, uh, for example, we did... We just needed to play somewhere initially, so we we did some village halls gigs, which went fantastically well. You know, all these kind of new punk types came out of the woodwork and just sort of pogoing around a village hall. Then um, I remember going to see the Stranglers at Barbarella's in Birmingham, and the DJ said, in a couple of weeks' time, we're having uh, Birmingham's first punk festival 
and anybody here who's got a band, come up and see me, and I'll put you down. And so I just ran up at the end of the show, and uh, he put Satan's Rats on. And there we were playing in the city, you know, the Barbarellas. Yes. And it was probably about our fifth or sixth gig or something. And uh, then we got some local management. These two guys who run a, a record shop in Evesham. And they started to help us get gigs. And we were ended up playing with people like XTC, you know, Slaughter and the Dogs. Uh, we we supported the Sex Pistols in, in Wolverhampton. Um, it, every week was different. Yeah. Something happened every week. And at the, and um, and then did the band sort of quickly fall? Because it was kind of a, it was a one-year gig, wasn't it? Uh, Satan's Rats together for a couple of years we got a record deal with DJM put out three singles uh, did a tour with a real dodgy group called Ricky and the Last Days of Earth <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm trying to think uh, I think we were going for a couple of years yeah yes and then did you have a moment, because some of the band left, that you thought, right, next well, band? Well, Paul, our singer, left. Um, so we thought that was a good idea to just change direction, get a female singer in. And uh, so we went on the hunt for a female singer, which took took a few months. We, even, uh, we got in our drummer's car, Ollie's car, drove up to Liverpool, to track down Jane Casey, who was lead singer in Big in Japan. Do you remember them? Yeah, well, I remember them now because of sort of being obsessed with music and sort of coming across that Liverpool yeah. scene of Eric's. And Jane always That's appears it. in interviews, doesn't she, as being one of, yeah. the, one of the main movers and shakers on the scene for then and, and still doing lots of stuff decades later. So, yeah, she's quite quite the character. So that was quite a... You're basically trying to buy Kevin Keegan, weren't you? <laughs> Something like that. We just read, you know, that her band had disbanded, so we thought, well, let's go and find her, you know, which we did. We went to her, round to her house, and, and she uh, gave us tea and cake, and uh, we played played her our demo, and she said that she liked it, but she she had just formed another group called Pink Military Standalone. And she said, listen, we'll go to uh, the club Liverpool Eric's that night and I'll introduce you to a couple of other people that might be interested. And um, that was it. We had a night out and uh, and drove back to Evesham. Yes, and that was that. And then, uh, and then, some, then we'd go to Birmingham and just tour around the clubs looking for interesting girls, you know. We did some kind of weird dancing or something or anything. Yeah. And we would just go up and say, can you sing? <laughs> and uh, anyway, we remembered from our nights out at Barbarella's there was a, a girl with long, dark hair who looked really interesting. So we... Um, we got her name and we tracked her down 
and she was living in Worcester at the time. And uh, so we got her along for an audition. Uh, we all thought she sounded a bit like Patty Smith, actually, and uh, just said, do you want to join? And that was it. That was the birth of the photos. Yes. So when she said yes, I mean, it was quite interesting because I remember listening to an interview with a guy from Jefferson Airplane who said that when he formed the band, he really wanted a female singer just to sort of not have the usual sort of dynamics of just all blokes in the band. Was that a slightly That's similar? Right. Was that a slightly similar idea with the photos that you thought, look, for God's sake, let's not have another chat? Yeah, yeah, it was to get away from that kind of standard punk thing. Um, and also, I'd started to learn how to write songs, and I thought, I want to write pop songs, you know, with a, a good, strong. Ramones-esque backing, but with, you know, a, a bit kind of blondie-ish. Yeah. We weren't trying to copy them, but I think Ramones were, were our main influence. And, uh, yeah, I, it just seemed like a good combination. And, uh, and it, I think it worked from the, from the outset. Uh, we made a little home demo and... Uh, we immediately got interest from a local record company called Cherry Red. Oh, my God, yes. We were based in Malvern. And, uh, I mean, they wanted to sign us immediately just on the strength of hearing this really rough demo. Um, Ian McNee, Ian McNee, yeah. who was the boss there, do you know the name? Yes, I'd, uh, bizarrely, I'd done an interview with Ian actually a few years ago just to because because Cherry Red have kind of hoovered up every indie label, haven't they? Basically, that's right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he had a friend called Oliver who lived in London and was looking for a band to sign, and uh, he he tipped Oliver off as to this band he wanted to sign, you know, which was us, and. Uh, Oliver poached us and said uh, that he had a partner that wanted to get into band management and his partner worked at Derek Block's agency. So it was clear instantly that we could get down to London and, and start doing gigs, which you know was, was a difficult thing to do if you didn't have a contact down there. Yeah. So he said, don't sign with Cherry Red. Sign with us. And uh, within six months, you know, it's quite possible you could be looking at a much bigger record deal. Yes. And, so, this, and was this really... And this was... Sorry? And this was CBS Records. That's who we eventually signed with. Uh, we had a choice of, of several, actually, that... We're all offering similar amounts of money, and it was a question of which would be the best um, label to go with. Uh, I don't think we really knew. We were acting on the advice of of our managers. Uh, they said, "Let's sign," or "You should sign with CBS." Um, and the Clash signed with CBS, so you know, why not? Yeah. And that's exactly, exactly what we did. Yeah, which is good. Could have, could have been Virgin, 
they were offering even more money than CBS actually. And did the and did the sort of the new combo, did the new lineup sort of start to sort of gel straight away? Because there was obviously you and Ollie who'd been with the you know in the previous band. Satan's yeah, me, Ollie, and Dave. I mean, we were we played with the Rats for the three of us probably eighteen months, so we were tight, you know. Yeah. Uh, so we sounded good straight away. That wasn't a problem. And and Wendy just absolutely took to uh, front of the band, you know, like a duck to water. Yes. So it was great. Yeah, and then you had the the first album, which obviously created a lot of interest and and had a lot of you know your mem- most memorable songs. Can you remember much about that recording process? I just wondered if if it was kind of quite quick, a bit like the first Black Sabbath album. <laughs> I do remember it. Um, they asked us who we would like to produce, and uh, we'd done a tour with the Undertones, and uh, they had a song called "You Got My Number," which we thought it was a great sounding record, which it is. And the guy who did it, his name's uh, Roger Pesherian. So we were booked to uh, record this album with Roger, and. We went to the the Who Studios, uh, Ramport, in Battersea, and um, well, yeah. <laughs> Wendy's voice went; she got ill. So for the first week, we uh, we just did the backing tracks with, with without Wendy. Normally, she'd be in the studio giving yeah. us a guide vocal, and. Uh, as it turned out, we played all the tracks a little t- bit too quick. It was all a bit fast. Um, so when she came back to, when she was well enough, she came and put the vocal on. <laughs> it was a bit of a struggle for her. But um, I remember it was a good experience, you know. Um, something weird did happen uh, during the mixing process. We were sent on a up north to do a few gigs, and uh, when we came back, they the album had been mixed. But Roger didn't mix it at Ramport. He went into a, a, another studio and changed the sound completely, because uh, originally it had a real tough sound. You know, it sounded like us playing yeah. live, and it, it came out a bit too kind of I don't know too polished yeah. so uh, there, there was a sense of disappointment there uh, but when I listened to the album you know there's a lot of good things on there yeah because uh, it's interesting because you... well, I know I, I was going to be I was a massive Smith fan I, but I always thought that first album they did just sounded very it didn't seem to have any kind of sort of that kind of substance that then when they did that, um, it was the John Peel sessions and various BBC ones they did at various, I suppose, made of L. And that production of Hatful of Hollow sounds much better. So I suppose, I suppose at times that your, your, that album, I suppose it sounds a little bit, you're right, it, it doesn't sound kind of, it, it sounds, I suppose, a bit thin, doesn't it, in, at times? more than Yeah, 
And I suppose yeah. I can't work out. I, I can't work out the, what the word would be, but it hasn't got that. It doesn't sound like the end tones. You got my number, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't have that. Kind no. Of, or the uh, Ramones, or you know, my favorite one of my favorite bands. Oh, that's my Motorhead, but that's a bit different. Isn't it? But you know what I mean. It's kind of has. A, it's a, it's. A, it doesn't sound like you came from a punk background. More of a more of a pop background. Being a bit punky you know yeah it, 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 it sounded a bit like the other way around rather than being the original you know you never in the original punk band supporting the sex pistols to sort of an album that sounds quite yeah like it was really looking for a top of the pops really than sort of yeah cbgb's yeah well this is what we started to think you know um, we were disappointed with the sound of it and we thought well maybe this was a directive from above you know from CBS Towers, you know, we want hits. <laughs> uh, and almost it was like a conspiracy to keep us away from the mixing process. And it's on tour, which, uh, you know, we weren't very pleased about. So um, we just lived with it. Uh, we were pleased with a lot of other things. For example, I, I liked the orchestration on some of those tracks. Some of the production ideas were great. Uh, ultimately, it was the general sound. You know, it didn't sound like us as a live group. Yes, I could imagine. And yes, and that did have... I mean, you, you did release a lot of singles from it as well, didn't you? Which was quite extraordinary for the time. Oh, yeah. CBS kept, you know, throwing them out. Um, I mean, with our first single, it got to a... I don't know, number 40 or something in the chart. And we were booked in to play Top of the Pops. And um, I remember every band at that time had to supposedly re-record the backing track before they did the show. And just for a musician's union directive or something, you know, uh, so we booked in. We booked ourselves into a studio where we were supposed to be re-recording the back end track, and um, we just sat around doing nothing because that's the way it went. And it was just in case uh, an MU official walked in just to check that he was being done properly. Uh, but ultimately, what would always happen was that on top of the pops, they'd play the the original track, and you'd just mime to it. So we went through all the, uh, to the builder, through the builder, and then uh, might have been the day before or two days before the show was cancelled because of a, uh, there was some kind of technician strike. The only time ever it happened in the history of Top of the Pops. Um, so that was disappointing. Yes. Uh, but the record company said, don't worry, <laughs> you'll be on the following week as long as the record doesn't go down. And we won't let it go down, you know, because of they've got supposedly a certain amount of power when it concerned, you know, chart rigging, whatever. Anyway, the record did go down. And uh, so we never made the follow-up show. And uh, I think they were pretty desperate to get us a hit. Uh, so they 
they would subsequent, subsequently release records, you know, at a fairly regular rate. Yes. Why did you never release, or why did they never release Do You Have Fun? Because that always seemed to be almost obvious. Well, I don't know. <laughs> You'll have to ask yes. Muff Winwood that. Yes, Muff. Why did you not? Well, I suppose that, uh, you know, that is such an immediate one that it just always jumps out more than anything. Uh, we used to have such battles with Muff. God. We would say, this is the obvious one. And he would say, no, I don't think so. I want to release this one, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, if I could write a book on it. <laughs> yes. It was, yeah, it was just, but did you think that, you know, Do You Have Fun would have been, you know, it's the first song on side one. Yeah, all, It all just, course. it was immediately kind of, oh, yeah, I can see, you know, yeah. it, it, it kind of... It, it kind as, of as said, a, this a band. Is, yeah, this is the band, this is what you're going to get, you know, and, you know, if you like this, you'll like the rest of the album, if you don't, then probably don't bother, but, you know, it's kind of very, you know, it's kind of, it's, and also it's probably my favourite track on the album, and Barbara well, it was quite, it's, it's quite simple, isn't it? You released that as a 45. Yeah. Uh, but Muff wanted to release something else, but he wanted an EP. Why? I don't know. Why release an EP when you've got the first track on the album is just such an obvious top 30? Yeah, because that was the one that would have um, seemed to be the kind of, yeah, bring it together. So when you were, during that time, were you touring pretty consistently or just kind of more randomly during during that sort of 80, 81? No, we, we toured a lot. We were always, we were always on tour. Um uh, well, we never stopped. If you went on tour, then you were either at home writing or demoing. And if you weren't doing that, then you're actually making a record. Yeah. Or you might be doing television. Uh, we used to do stuff abroad. Uh, we did the whistle test and a few other shows. Uh, yeah, always busy. Yes. Because it was a very intense time, and kind of 81, this is when you were sort of releasing the second album, Crystal Tips and Mighty Mice. Did you, yeah. I mean, did that, because you broke up quite soon after that. I mean, because doing this show for a long time now, there is a sort of the five-year narrative of the band, which is normally, you know, they get together... 18 months or 12 months, you know, then sometimes, you know, the cliche, you know, the John Peel gives it a spin, then the John Peel session, that first album, things going well, second album, sometimes not so well. You know, if anybody ever does America, it seems to completely finish them off. So you sort of got to that second album, but were you kind of limping at the time? Um, well, we went into the album sessions, uh, in, in good spirits. Um, but before that, what had happened was that when CBS released the first album, they, um, they gave away about 50 of these, these little cameras, little plastic cameras, um, with the name, the photos stamped on them. And they made them a shitty little cameras. I don't even think they took a picture. But uh, the NME got hold of this story and 
uh, blew it up, blew it up out of all proportion, claiming that CBS were handing out Pentax cameras, you know, to chart return shops. And I suppose they could have done that, but these were not Pentax cameras. These were it's just a promotional gimmick. So we got some bad press from that, and uh, this was, you know. Well, it was difficult for us because we didn't feel like we were a manufactured band. You know, it was we just weren't. And yet uh, this bad press made us feel like that and obviously turned some of the industry against us because they probably believed that, you know, the, the NME side of the story. So... <clears throat> Yeah, going into the, the Tony Visconti sessions, that was at the back of our mind. But creative, you know, creatively, uh, everything went fantastically well. Uh, one of the best experiences I ever had working with Tony, and uh, we made an album which was quite, quite different from the first. And listening to the playbacks after we'd finished it. You know, uh, Muff Winwood came in with a crowd of people from CBS, listened to the playback, and then he took me aside. He said, that one track on there, he said, that's a number one. Mark my words, that's a number one. So, you know, we were buoyed by comments like this. And uh, and then it all started to go, started to go wrong. <laughs> Muth called me into his office about a week later, and he said, um, "He said I need, I need, a, I need a hit single." And I said, "Muth, there are loads on there," and he said, "Well, I don't think there are." I said, "What about the one you said would make a number one?" And he said, "Well, I'll release that. You know, once we've got a top thirty. So, <clears throat> what did he do? He said, which track do you want me to release? And I said, well, how about so-and-so? I think it was called Life in a Day. And uh, he said, okay, I'll release that. We'll see how it does. And CBS just did no promotion on, on it whatsoever. He was just like, yeah, I've released it. See, it flopped. You know, listen to me. And uh, sent me back to Evesham to record what was supposed to be a hit single. So I, I sat around for a week, you know, um, putting together a couple of songs. Uh, we went and demoed them in Cheltenham, and we took them to, to Muff, and he said, great, exactly what I want. Uh, so he put us back into the studio with uh, Tony's engineer, because Tony by now had... He said he was so angry with CBS. He, he just washed washed his hands of them, and so we ended up uh, recording these two tracks with his engineer Gordon, a great guy. And CBS put the, this song out, which I thought was garbage. <laughs> it's called Wheel Win, and. Um, and that flopped as well. 
and as a result of that, the album never got released. My God. Uh, yeah, yeah, and as a result, I, th- I think Wendy went into some kind of depression about it, and we had a, a week's worth of rehearsals booked up to do a tour, and she she failed to to turn up any on any day. And we got really despondent with the whole thing. Uh, we cancelled a tour of the States. Uh, and we found ourselves split up in the space of about a month. My God, that was um, probably the, was that the worst month of your, li- of your life. It wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> God. Bloody hell. God. Was, was, was the month Winwood sort of relation, did it feel just like having uh, having an abusive kind of friendship with somebody? I mean, it sounds like <laughs> it was just like somebody who was out to destroy you without sort of, yes. Well, it was utterly bizarre, you know. Um, yeah. Destruction from within. And, uh, and there was one point where our managers didn't help, you know. They thought, well, it, maybe it's the best thing to do. Is for you to get another singer, and when you can have a solo career. And looking back, it was kind of obvious that they just wanted two acts to manage. And uh, yeah, I don't know, but it didn't work out anyway because we did try and uh, to go ahead with another singer. Her name was Shay. She was American. Real nice girl. Real good voice. But um, you should never split up a group where the chemistry is good because the chemistry will never be the same. Yeah. And Joe Strummer said that uh, on some documentary. And uh, very true words. Yes. Well, yes, a few years later, I suppose, having followed the Smiths. I mean, when they broke up, it was a bit like... Yeah, you just you do need to just all stop now. There's no point trying to replace a guitarist or another musician or whatever. You just you know it's best to just leave it there as as that that's the piece that's the work and to yeah. move, and to move away from it really because yeah it can't really be sort of um, sometimes replaced unless I don't know there was I did see one of those rock documentaries which I do love called on a weird and interesting band called Chicago who were very middle of the road but they they just the band continued but with just so many different evolving or different personnel lineups but they must have just got used to it just saying oh yes we've got a new keyboard player we've got a new guitarist we've got a new drummer so they 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 just kept it going because it was kind of like a a job I suppose whereas whereas most bands aren't kind of quite like that they're slightly more sensitive I suppose isn't it or more fragile yeah well you do depend on on that chemistry to keep it going you know we we had a a certain band of band humour you know we knew our we just knew each other inside out, and um, and that's what a band is all about, isn't it? Yes. Just you know, a bunch of people being creative and and having a good time. And if you're strong enough to get through the bad times, then that's brilliant. But yeah, you know, something happened. We weren't. Yeah. 
Um, And with the second album, because I wondered why there's never been any sign of it. Is it... Is it never going? Is it just in some vault somewhere? Just sitting no, it's there? out. It's out. And guess who put it out? God, Cherry Red Records. Cherry Red. Cherry Red. Dear old Cherry yeah. Red. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> ah. So you, get, you can get it on CD. You can get it on Amazon. It's it, out. You know. it's, I mean, when, it sounds great. So, out of the two albums, is that your your sort of? kind of favoured one because of the production? Not necessarily. Um, I think if you didn't know anything about the band, you might listen to them side by side and think they're almost two completely different bands. We we didn't... We didn't want to make an album that was identical to the first album, but I think maybe we went, we went too far the other way. Yes. Looking back at it, yeah. And do you feel because because actually you didn't even you know because that five year thing didn't didn't sort of happen with the band, did it? Did you sort of feel that there would have just been if you'd been if it'd been better management and a better record label, you could have had at least another three four albums and a sort of an ability to explore it even further. Yeah, yeah, easy, definitely. Yeah, um, everything was in place. You know, we had a good agent, and we'd done a tour with the police. We toured with Squeeze, the Undertones, and uh, even you two supported us at the Marquee. You know, and stuff like that was happening. Um, we had the the ability to do it, definitely. Yeah, and did you? I mean, a few decades ago, you did have a quick sort of. Reunion. Did that feel? Oh, it wasn't decades. Yes, it was. It was kind of a few years later after splitting up. You did a a one-off gig. We did. Uh, I think we did three gigs. This would have been mid 80, 84, 1984, We did a a reunion gig uh, at the Marquee, which went fantastically well. But then we did a, another couple of gigs in other parts of the country, which would like dead, you know. Yes. And oh, did well, you and did you sort of when you when you saw that sort of indie scene that happened for the most of the eighties, did you keep thinking we should have been there as well? Well I didn't personally because as soon as all that was uh, as soon as it was all over, I I thought I can't stand this thing called the music business. I've got to get out. And uh I was a big fan of a band called Blurt at the time, and I knew Ted Milton, the sax player. And uh, he phoned me up one day and said, I've fallen out with the guitar player in Blurt. Could you help me out? And I said, yeah. So uh, that's when I joined Blurt. And uh, there was no big business involved. Any recordings we did were in little studios put out on a, a little independent label but we would, we would do loads and loads of touring around Europe we could go away for six weeks you know in Germany for example yeah and, uh, and that's when I really really started enjoying um, being a musician you know I thought this is so different from what, I, what was happening with the photos and I, I enjoyed this more you know, this is proper. 
Yes. And uh, Blurt is a band I still play with. And they're still happening, which is fantastic. So that is kind of your story, isn't it? I mean, did you sort of form any other bands at that in, in sort of that period? You know, or not well, in the 90s, I formed a band called Bang Bang Machine, which uh, we had that kind of John Peel seal of approval with our first with our first release. And uh, in 1990-something, I don't know, mid-90s at some point, we uh, we got number one in Peel's Festive 50, um, which led us to a couple of record deals. Uh, and I thought that was going to work out, but um, various reasons that didn't. <laughs> so I've had a couple of stabs at it, at the so-called big time. Yes. So then you were playing with this sort of, it wasn't so much the indie pop scene as that sort of late 80s, kind of early... No, no it wasn't. No, this was a kind of uh, early to mid-90s. The Britpop period. Yes, we we were together for quite a while actually, and I remember there were a couple of scenes happening at the time. Uh, I remember they put us on the front cover of Time Out as being you know like the next big thing, um, and then if you looked in on the inside pages of that particular edition, you'd see other bands that were tipped for for the top. Uh, Suede being one of them, uh, The Verve being another, and uh, anyway, they made it. We didn't. But, but you did. <laughs> but you did two albums. Yes, we did. Yes, and so were you. Did you ever appear on one of those Shine compilations? I remember there was these Shine compilations kept coming out for the. Um, Britpop bands like Pulp, Blur, Oasis, you know, I don't know, My My Life Story, all those kind of ones. I just wondered, did you get slightly labelled in that? No, I don't think we were. I think what happened was that we couldn't be, we couldn't be pigeonholed. It was probably our downfall. Uh, because our first single was track called Geek Love, which was a nine-minute-long track. Um, we followed that up with something, I suppose, in the same area. And then from then on, everything we did was completely different from what came before. I think maybe we had to go at too many different things. So we were not Britpop. Um but I don't know what we were. Yes. Just a... Were you slightly avant-garde, would you say? Yeah, yeah. You had that... Left, left field. It was pop music, but it was very left field. Yes. And again, you had a female singer in that band. Yeah, yeah. And how did she compare to Wendy? Completely differently. Um, but definitely a talent... You know, it's no good having a singer that doesn't have something. Yeah. Um, Liz, Liz did have a talent, yeah, definitely. So then, 
So just kind of lastly, I mean, when was the last time you sort of met any of the the old members of the photos? I just wonder, do you still occasionally send Christmas cards or correspondence with each other? <laughs> um, well, Dave, the bass player, he lives in Evesham, so I see him frequently. Uh, Wendy lives locally, but I don't see her much. Ollie lives in London, uh, uh, still makes films. Uh, but we are all in contact via email because we've just managed, I hope, to claw back our, our copyright on all our recordings over in the States, this is. So, um, Ollie dealt with that. Cost us, I don't know, about 60 quid each or something. And then this firm, the lawyer's firm in um, in New York, they've They've been going around trying to uh, extricate bands from their uh, record deals, you know, ones that have run out yes. for a few decades. So hopefully we'll we'll get our um, our rights back. My God, because it's interesting. Because I do sort of, I did sort of, you know, play this, you know, the album, the first album on Spotify. You nearly get two thousand listeners a month, and uh, yes. Do You Have Fun is your third favourite, most popular song. They should have released it as a single. Um, from, from what the punters say, the listeners. Yeah. So, um, yes, there's still people oh, who, the... who want to, to listen to the band, even if they can't hear the second ba- uh, album so easily. Um, is the second album on Spotify? No, it's not. It's not? It's okay. definitely not. Right, maybe I could do something about that. Yes, we would love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's just the first, the first one, which I think has got a few extra tracks as well on it. So um, yeah, yeah. But no, it was just, it was just kind of interesting. And and um, and Muff, what happened to Muff after all that? Did he sort of work on the back of his brother's success? Uh, well, I mean, he got the job in the first place at CBS because he produced uh, um, Dire Straits first album although he didn't produce Sultans of Swing that was the original demo they they couldn't improve on it so and, but the album was a big hit wasn't it that yes. first one yeah everyone had it yeah so so Muff got you know became head of A&R at CBS on the back of that I think yeah. But uh, I'm sure he, he, you know, he might have been great with the bands, but he, he just seemed to want to destroy us. <laughs> <laughs> Do you Inexplicably. Want, I, and I was going to say, kind of almost lastly, I mean, is it the case that you would love to sort of put out some sort of, you know, definite collection of the band, you know, with some nice sleeve notes? Because obviously that's what seems to happen a lot nowadays. I think 30 years seems to be this pattern of time that I've noticed that things suddenly people feel like, oh, actually, it's time to sort of make a nice archive and make sure that we've got everything and, and written some nice sleeve notes, included some nice pictures. Uh, have you ever sort of had that f- kind of dream for the for the photos? Uh, no, never crossed my mind, actually. I don't know. Um, well, there, were, there were only two albums. If there were like three or four, then... Yes. I could... I could understand that, but... Two. Ah, let's just leave it. Just 
Just leave it and move on. But what would you say yeah. then to an, an, an 18 year old self? If, if, some, if you could have said something to your, yourself back then that you've learned over the decades, I was just wondering what that would be. Uh, it would be keep the band together. You know, we, we could have done. Um, but outside forces were, you know, giving us different, um, different reasons to do what we did. So um, I think we met, we made, we didn't, we made the wrong, we made the wrong move. Yes. But at least you got to work with Tony Visconti, the legend. Yes, yeah. And that yeah. must have been quite amazing because that was a period, I, I just remember that I think David Bowie and him had slightly had a bit of a falling out, but um, he went on, he'd worked already with so many people and went on to work with so many. That must have been nice to work with somebody who had that ability to, uh, you just know he had this sort of, you know, jobs for it. Well, it was just... Just after he'd uh, made the Scary Monsters album with with Bowie, um, and I think Tony then did immediately before us. He'd done a Boomtown Rats album out in Ibiza, I think it was, and then he came back to London and and made uh, made our album. Yes, and uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant experience. And, and, what, and what, is, what, what gives producers a different quality? I've always been kind of curious, being a non-musician. I mean, is it their kind of character, attitude, the skill level? Uh, yeah, well, it's all those things, isn't it, really? Um, a bit like football managers, I guess. Yes, I guess yep. it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you get the best, the best out of a group of people. And if, you, if you're inventive... Then you'll experiment with different sounds, different ways of doing things, and uh, I think it's inspiring the musicians to do as best they can, yeah. um, and recognizing good songs, knowing that you're going to you're going to end up with a good product. Yes. There you go, Tony Visconti. Well, look. Steve, thank you ever so much for this because I've um, yes, I've been. I think it's been sort of sometimes a bit off and on for for a while, but I'm really chuffed. And when I put it out, I'll send you a link, and then you're going to either put it on. I think there's a fan page, isn't there? Or well, could it be your page actually? The photos, um, yeah, and people can hear it then because uh, yeah, it'd be great actually. So um, is that okay? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. It's always good, but thank Brilliant. you again for your time, and I uh, hope you. Um, Yes, can get out again later this week, if if not tomorrow for a bike ride. Tomorrow, it's a daily, a daily thing. Otherwise, you go mad. Otherwise, you get very mad. I know. <laughs> we've, we've we've got new sort of routines now to go out once a day. Yeah. Anyway, look, stay safe, and I hope it goes well and for you. the future. Okay. Thanks again for your time. That's All been right. really appreciative. Okay. Take care. No, nice one. Yeah. And you. Bye bye. 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 And that is the end of the interview. You thought it was never going to finish, didn't you? Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening and a big thank you to Steve Eagles 
one-time member of Satan's Rats, and also, obviously, The Photos. Go and check out their back catalogue. It still sounds brilliant today. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. It's all good to hear from you. And also, I've archived all these shows, so you can find those on, um, yes, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, at C86 Show. It's all there. Have a great week.